Welcome to episode 8 of Beanie and Blazer Radio, your weekly audio dump of high-performance insights and best practices to help you engineer a purposeful lifestyle. Hosted by me, Brandon Walker, and Eric Horback. In today's episode, we're doing a book review. Specifically, Johan Hari's New York Times best-selling book, Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope. Throughout the course of the episode, we break down the nine causes of depression as outlined by Hari, along with relevant personal anecdotes and stories. This is a unique format for Beanie and Blazer Radio, and we had a lot of fun on this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, all right. React and Riff, the segment where you learn more than you expect about things that actually matter. This week was my turn to do the research. Sir, are you ready to get fucked up with some knowledge? Yes, and I missed you. It's been 10 days since we recorded. It has been a while. It feels weird because I did like all this research for the last one too. So I had to like remind myself what everything was. Yeah, I missed you. Thanks, man. I missed you too. All right, good. Um, All right, so this one's going to be a little bit different. Like in the past, we've picked a general topic and then kind of unpacked it as we went. This time, I had, so I read a book I was doing some research on human connection for another project that I'm working on. Mm. And I read a book called um, Lost Connections by a guy named Johan Hari. Okay. And it inspired me to kind of like unpack that book with you on this podcast because what the entire book, it's called Lost Connections, um, why you're depressed or, and, or anxious and how to solve it or something like that. Is this like the subtitle? Okay. And the importance of it was that it dealt entirely in getting people, and you said this once to me, that psychology or psych- psychological practices and those clinical psychologists, they kind of get people back to normal mm-hmm. from wherever negative they might be to zero. And performance, performance coaching gets you from zero to wherever you are or from you know five to 10, whatever it might be. Or even if you're quote unquote negative, instead of normalizing, it's just getting you to, like if you have... ADD, for example, it's not about mm-hmm. trying to make you normal. It's about leveraging your ADD to maximize your performance. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. So you're focused on, in performance, you're focused on improving some aspects from like a neutral and in seeking help from like maybe a psychologist, you're looking to uh, maybe feel better about some aspect of your life that you're feeling like a negative response to, mm. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, the point is, what I recognize in going through, so he listed out nine causes for depression and anxiety. And when he talked about the causes and when he talked about depression and anxiety, um, I know that there's a lot of stigma in thinking about it because one, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people that have severe cases of these things, mm-hmm. but most of our culture is riddled with it. Most of the people we meet every day, most of the people we talk to, a lot of our friends, we all have ups and downs and anxious moments and entrepreneurs especially deal with tons of depression it's just it's riddled in the entrepreneurial community because you're one you're messing with like neurochemicals that we've talked about on here that send you through like these deep um what dark side of flow type states um and i think in identifying so the nine causes that he came up with and seven solutions if we run through those I think that you'll have the same reaction that I did, that a lot of these things, especially the seven things you can do to make sure you come out of those depressed states based off the nine, um, they are high performance elements. Okay. And uh, let's, I'll, I'll read you real quick and we'll just like dip into each one of the nine causes. 
Um, we'll actually do the first seven because the last two are genetics and like brain malfunctions. So we'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll fill you in on those causes. And then you can help me finish the thought on where these things tie into, into human performance. Okay. Sounds like fun. Yeah. So the nine causes, and he describes each of these as a disconnect. So as human beings, as a species, we've developed, um, you know, these hundred thousand year old brains and they're designed to do specific things. And over generations, we've disconnected from very specific things that drive us. Okay. So first one is disconnection from meaningful work. Okay. The second one is disconnection from other people. Uh, the third one, disconnection from meaningful values. Fourth one, disconnection from childhood trauma. The fifth one, disconnection from status and respect. The sixth one is disconnection from the natural world. And number seven is disconnection from a hopeful or secure future. And then eight and nine are genetic, genetic and brain. Would you mind sharing eight and nine? I understand why we we're not going to riff on those so much, but I'm curious what they are. It's genetic. It's genetics. Genetics, like, so they oh, say that, yeah. So in, in general, depression and anxiety, they say is between 30 and 40% genetic or some sort of actual brain malfunction. So historically, psychiatrists and the $100 billion pharma, big pharma world had told people that depression and anxiety comes from um, a malfunction in your neurochemicals. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they are. But there, that's not the it's real reason, part of right? The... It's natural. It's, it's it's environmental reasons. It's social reasons that it actually occurs. That that's what Johan had come up with in his book. Okay. So, um, and the thirty to forty percent that they say is genetics. There is an argument there that I read a book called um, "It Didn't Start with You" a while back, and that book had described a lot of like the problems that people have with depression and anxiety as a transgenerational issue, which means like there is a trauma that happens somewhere down your line. So if you take that into effect, it might be even far less of just an actual brain malfunction and more like environmental, but generational. But I don't want to get deep into that. That's not like just okay, fair. I'm not going deep on that, but just to make sure I understand that it's like there is some sort of significant trauma let's say a kidnapping happened to my great yep. great grandmother exactly. and because it happened to her she taught her kids to be like very reclusive and sheltered and then that like just continued to proliferate down the line yeah they did a lot of studies on um people that were held in co uh, nazi concentration camps uh -huh. and in the book they listed out a ton of those studies and some of the stuff that came out from you know generations down the line that they had symptoms of the nazi concentration camps mentally Interesting, and you know they he made he made very spiritual spiritual arguments in the book, but also like a lot of really cool psychological evidence, nice and studies. Um, cool, great resources and references there. Um, uh, so yeah, what do you so what are we doing with these seven causes? Uh, you outline them. How do you want me to? Yeah, so um, each each one, it was looking through them, and I have some studies in here that I can I can pull up on my notes. Each one. There was each one had each one of the causes had a solution, and each one of those solutions 
you and I, I guarantee have come across in some of the high performance studies that we've done and research that we've done. In fact, when I was reading it, I was like, man, you can change the context of this book and call it a high performance type of book or some sort of uh, more personal development type of book and take these seven solutions, imply or apply them to someone's life and solve a lot of their performance issues. So from your experience, from your research, from my experience and my research, I kind of want to finish that thought and I can give you some of the studies as we move forward and just hit each one of those topics and see if we can come up with like the high performance solutions for each one of those. Because you're trying to, if your goal, especially with Beanie and Blazer, with podcasts, you really take people from either from zero to one. I think this is a perfect place to think about zero to one. And I think it also, I mean, if we can come up with some stuff, I think there are a lot of places you can take it from the person, you know, tens the scale from five to 10 right? by doing some of these things. Right. And you'll notice that some, I mean, just in reading over that list, I'm sure you probably already thought through like some of the stuff that Michael Gervais or like Stephen Kotler has talked about in yeah. some of their courses. And to your point from earlier, like being a high performer does not mean that you don't succumb to mm-hmm. mental health issues right like uh, sure with an appropriate recovery protocol and like taking vacation and stuff like you're hedging it you're mm-hmm. you're uh increasing your tolerance for some of those struggles and pains that you may experience but at the end of the day like things can creep up on people no matter how self-aware or uh mitigatory they are dude absolutely yeah i think that and that's part of burnout we've talked about burnout Mm-hmm. I think on the show, right? Yeah. Haven't we had a topic on burnout? Yeah, I mean, burnout. I mean, I, I think that there's there's obviously a case to be made that depression is terrible. I've never experienced like full-blown, can't get out of bed, like depression. And right. I sympathize with those people. But there's also, there's mild depressive cases that people don't even know they have. And they just walk through life in these states and they can't figure out why they're stuck. They can't figure out why they can't get to that performance level that they really want to be at. They can't get to like, if they're in a job or they just graduated college, um, maybe years go by and they just haven't found the job they want. Mm -hmm. Like that effort at the back end of that effort, if you don't have a result, then you're probably going to find yourself in some sort of depressed state. Um, So these things, I think that this book and the thing, the reason why I really wanted to hit this book is because I think if you use the word depression, slap it on a book anywhere, even if it's in a subtitle, people that don't know that they might be experiencing like a mild case of it won't pick it up, right? Because it's like this dirty thing that you don't want to touch. Because it's stigmatized? I think so. Yeah, right. Or maybe they don't want to admit that it, it might be something that has affected them, right? And as an entrepreneur for the last 12 years, I can guarantee you, I know that I've been in states where I would call like a mild depressive state Mm -hmm. and had to like use kind of like the training through performance, through like all the meditative stuff, practices, the courses, use that. It's like, oh, okay, shit. I feel like shit. And I know that I need to do these steps in order to come out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So starting with the first one. And this one, I think... um, this is an easy one because we've, and we've already actually dove in this a little bit, but disconnection from meaningful work is the first one he talks about. So there's a study and I know like, um, Simon Sinek talks about this a lot and you might see it on some memes and such, but there's a study that was done by Gallup, the polling company, uh, in 2011 and 2012 across 142 countries with millions of workers studied, 
they found that 13% of us say that we are actually engaged in our work, in our jobs. Um, and this is a quote from them. That means that they are enthusiastic about and committed to their work and contribute to their organization in a positive manner. <clears throat> These are old. This is almost a decade old now. And I have like one of them updated that is a little bit different. And it's this one. And it's so 13% are engaged. 63% say they are not engaged. Um, I've recently saw another study that said that it was somewhere more in like 70s. So about 76. Um, but based off of this study in 2011, 2012, um, 63% that say they are not engaged and they define that as sleepwalking through their work day, putting time, but not energy or passion into their work. Um, and then additionally, 24%, this is the part that really stood out for me. 24% said they're actively disengaged, meaning they aren't just unhappy at work. They're busy acting out their unhappiness every day. These workers undermine what their engaged coworkers accomplish actively disengaged employees are more or less out to damage the company. 24%. 24%. And that's according to Gallup? Gallup. Isn't that bizarre? I've definitely seen that behavior, but that's a lot higher than I would expect. It's high. Yeah. So anyway, so how do you combat that, right? Based off of, you know, there's, there's three categories here. There's people that are just drifting through life not really knowing. And we know people like that. I know people like that. There's people that are super engaged, but they can't quite get to the performance levels that they want because they might be hindered by the 24% that are disengaged. Right. Um, and then you have 24% that are literally out to, you know, they're like Fuck viruses. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking shit up. Yeah. And even if these, even if these numbers are a little tweaked, right, let's say that the newest numbers was six seventy. I think it was 76% of people that are just drifters. We can even just talk about those drifters and what can they do? How can those drifters perform better or at least get unstuck, right? Because that seems to me like a, like a real stuckness there. I'm having a hard time like focusing on just the question of how do you solve that in the context of depression? Because think about that. 76% of people in the workforce, and let's just say it's, it's any job that requires a college degree, 76%. I'm adding like just to narrow the pool here. Mm -hmm. That means 76% of corporate jobs, of jobs in tech and jobs in manufacturing, um, like just, yeah, white, let's say white collar jobs. 76% of people are disengaged. That means that three out of every four people went to college, earned a degree in a particular subject, joined a company, are supposedly chasing their passion of what they went to school for and are actively disengaged from the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's so I don't know what the implication there is that there's a chronic issue with people's ability to assess what they're going to want, but there's another variable. It's either a, you don't actually like the type of work that you're doing. B your boss sucks or C the company you work for sucks or some or D your peers suck you know, or your perception of those things is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this to me, if the numbers really are that high, which again, I have a hard time, like if you're saying it's from Gallup and we can reference the study and, and everything, then it is what it is. But I think the first step as with anything, if you're dissatisfied or discontented with 
uh, a particular situation, it starts with a conversation, like an, an engagement of some sort. So it's like this, this goes for the people who are just sort of sleepwalking the folks who are actively disengaged and are trying to break shit down. They need to leave or be fired and go find another. Well, role. they're not listening to this podcast. They're most likely doubt. I doubt it. Right. So like those people just should not be where they are because that's like too far gone to salvage. Mm -hmm. But if you're sleepwalking through the role, perhaps either a, the work that you're doing is no longer in alignment with your values or the things that make you feel fulfilled. Um, or B the work itself does hit those points, but you're having a really challenging interpersonal relationship. And so it comes down to an assessment of, am I in the right company in the right role? And if the answer is yes, what relationships need to change within that for this to be the right fit for me? And mm -hmm. so I think it starts with that sort of clarity and self-reflection. Um, and that, that creates a fork in the road for uh, the actions that you take thereafter. Yeah. And that kind of will go into the number three on that list was meaningful values, disconnected from meaningful values. And I think those definitely go together. But I also think when it comes to disconnect from meaningful work, which is the first one we're the topic here, there's, um, is a quote I always like that was, if you can't change it, change the way you think about it. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think a lot of people, regardless of the situations they're in, there's, there's a dialogue inside of their own head that they can change. They can manipulate. There's activities that they can do to alter that dialogue so that they can actually turn where they are into a more meaningful place. And, you know, I'm the, I, I never like listing a bunch of things out and telling people or suggesting to anybody like you need to do this in giant, giant list, right? Cause that's overwhelming and no one's going to do it. So when it comes to mindset, and people like changing their own mindset, you need to like, I, I find that you have to start extremely small, a meaningful, easy win for yourself, right? And this one seems like it could be a fairly easy one. I don't know. You know, I've, I've been in situations before where I felt like I was stuck or I felt like I, and this is companies I've owned. And I was like, you know, there's something missing here. Mm -hmm. And all it took was a reframing reframing exactly what was going on, reframing exactly what I was doing in that company. Like if that company was a company that made shoes or something, right? Okay. And you're just, you're putting shoes on people's feet. You can reframe exactly what you do in that company to one, in, inspire the people around you to think differently by acting differently. That could be a part of your meaning. Two, you can simply say, wow, you know, we're doing something amazing. We're putting things on people's feet. That's incredible. Maybe we're doing it at like a low cost or we're doing something. There's always something there. And three, I can guarantee you that company has a mission, regardless of the, if the leaders are expressing that mission in a way that like goes across the company, they have a mission. And if you can't get yourself out of that company or out of that situation, I think you can go out and you can find meaning in it. But then obviously, you know, develop your values and try to figure out like, should you leave this job? Should you not? Because even if you even if you work in a company that has like a really cool mission and a lot of really cool leaders, and you find yourself with that negative loop in your in your mind about all the stupid little things that drive you crazy, it's really just a reframe to realign with their mission. I uh, yes. So for me, you know, going back through these disconnection from meaningful work, the first three of them: disconnection from meaningful people, disconnection from meaningful values. 
the people and the values is it, it's in scope that's a lot bigger than work. Like the, the relationships that you develop at work or the way that your values engage with what you're doing at work are, that's only a small piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But the fact that like when I was talking about work, as we brought up work and we talked about the disconnect from the mission, disconnect from the team, disconnect from the boss, whatever, that inherently pulls in two and three, the people and the values into that. Like totally that's, that's oftentimes a huge part of why work, the relationship with work is broken down, you know, because if Mm -hmm. you went to school to be an accountant, you'll likely leave job a in accounting that you don't like that you're disconnected from to go get a different accounting job. In a lot of cases, some people have a change of heart and want to want to switch things up, Mm -hmm. but the work is still very comparable. It's just the environment that they were placed in. They had a dissociation with. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's skip to values, which is number three, mm-hmm. and because that I think that that's something that you're really good at, um, is teaching people how to develop their values. So if we skip to number three, that can inform number one, which is the meaningful work, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So um, disconnect from meaningful values. I I think this is the biggest problem for people's happiness in the entire, I'll say in the country, I'm not traveled enough to say like in the world, but so many people are living life by the expectations of somebody else, whether it's society, whether it's familial, what there's a script that, or, or what you've been telling yourself that you're capable of. Think of it like the way that you act, the way that you behave every day is derivative of some sort of story that you've been telling yourself when you wake up in the morning, what what are you saying? What are you doing? How are you acting? What what job are you going into? What things do you do on the weekends? How do you spend your free time? We all grow up in an environment. We watch our parents to a degree where either choose to model our parents' behavior so it serves as a, this is how I want to live, or it serves as our first indicator of that's not how I want to live. And you operate in uh, contrast of what you saw from your parents. Then in addition to that, the media that we consume, the commercials that we're fed, the the values that we're told to uphold. It's not until you have a moment of like clarity and self-reflection that you realize like, what are the odds that every single fucking person going through their life wants to live in accordance with this American dream, keeping up with the Joneses? You know, you should be popular in school. You got to finish high school. You should go to college. You got to get married. You have to go get a house with a white picket fence. You should have the car. Like, that is the same narrative in general that people are fed through the school system, through media, through everything else, right? Just like everything else, not one size fits all. And so I believe that all of, not all of, but a lot of the insecurities that people feel or the disconnect from their jobs or the disconnect from their families or the reason that they feel latent and complacent and not wanting to do certain things is because they have zero interest in living according to the values that they are currently living by. And so it creates this disconnect, this feeling of restlessness. Like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do if this doesn't feel right? So if you were to rewrite this book, do you think, like, would you put values in front? Like if you were to rewrite the content that's in this book and try to like target it towards a more performance culture, would you put values first? Yeah, I I mean, well, going, going through the rest of these, like, trauma healing childhood trauma is probably 
more important than values. Well, like, you, you touched on that a little bit. Like trauma, I think there's trauma, and we don't need to get into that because this isn't a psychology podcast, but then there's micro traumas. Right. And I like to think of it like it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. I've used that analogy before, where if you have one little thing that happens to you, your brain, your your brain is designed to protect you and preserve energy. Two things it does really well. And if you have one uncomfortable thing as a child, then all of a sudden that puts a flag in it, in, in your mind. It puts a flag in that moment. And if there's another moment that pops up and seemingly is similar to that one, that flag gets bigger. And then death by a thousand paper cuts, as soon as like you see, if once you see that pattern and maybe it's a painful pattern, it could be from your parents, it could be from a caregiver, it could be from um, a teacher, any anyone with like authority. If there's a pattern that, um, your brain picks up on it will put it into the subconscious and then you will it'll streamline it because you want to preserve energy so if it notices that this is painful this is painful this is painful you'll develop a avoidance pattern because your brain just pushes that into the subconscious and says look we're just going to give you anxiety right right you because we want you to stay away from this thing so i think disconnect from from a performance standpoint disconnect from childhood trauma i would change that to like micro traumas and, okay. and thus make it less profound in a performance standpoint so that we could start with values. Okay. So in that context, trauma then it has compounded into a series of habits and um, scripts of self-talk running through the head. Mm-hmm. So if we are talking about legit real trauma of like like very damaging sort of like nobody should experience that type trauma mm-hmm. that needs to be healed before the conversation is about performance because you can have performance in one domain but you're shutting down a lot of other really important stuff again not a therapy psychology podcast but that's my opinion like some of those things that are really deep seated need to be addressed and healed before you can strive to be your fullest self like and I, it's a castle of sand and i think i tend to agree even though you know we're not you know, neither of us are doctors or psychologists or like masters of any of this stuff are kind of just practitioners of performance, but based off of a ton of research, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but if, as we're framing it as micro traumas and what has compounded in the, the shell that you've built around your brain or the ruts that you have or, um, uh, blind spots that you have in your perspective, then I think it, it, to an- to answer the previous question of is values the first thing in the book the answer for me is yes like he may have ranked it based on some sort of study that says disconnection from meaningful work is the number one thing that people report that makes them feel depressed mm-hmm. right like if it's a fucking survey that you're asking people about like that makes sense to me you spend a majority of your time at work and like you think about it all the time that's what gives most people most of their anxiety finance work mm-hmm. and interpersonal relationships but values underlies everything mm-hmm. like the the people i you, not not just me the people you choose to hang out with right it's at the end of the day or on the weekend are you going to go hang out and drink and party? But again, no, like no judgment, but like, is that where you choose to go? Do you go hang out outdoors? Do you go travel? Do you write? Like who are the people that you spend time with? So like show me the activities that you do in your work time and in your free time and show me the people that you spend time with. Show me 
what you eat and your exercise regimen, like show me some of these things and you can build up a, a whole persona of somebody. And the reason that they do those things is because they are either A, living in accordance with their true values and they're thoughtful and intentional about how they're doing those things, or B, they're going through the motions following whatever these latent scripts are that are running in their head. And there's an uh, sort of just a complacent approach to life. Which is kind of the drifters, right? The drifting, the 63 to 70% that are just disengaged, but not actively disengaged. The actively disengaged one still is throwing me for a loop. Like I've only witnessed that maybe two from two people that were outwardly trying to create harm. Maybe more than that, maybe a handful. Yeah. He didn't go deep into detail and, you know, we can pull up Gallup stuff one day, but, or maybe throw it in, in the show notes and exactly what they were talking about. I just picked up that one quote, but I, you know, there's a, I would imagine that some of them maybe are subconsciously doing things to harm themselves and the people around them and the organization that they work with and potentially Gallup. I just was able to identify exactly those actions or characteristics Mm. of someone that was subconsciously harming wherever they were. But um, to keep going down the list, um, the next one, it's a good segue, is disconnection from other people. And this one was in Lost Connections. It was done by the University of Chicago, where they measured the cardiovascular um, response in people. They measured heart rate, and they gave people beepers and tubes to walk around campus with. And the idea was, so in, on day one, when the beeper went off, they would write down the time and um, they write down two things, the time of day and the measurement as far as like what their heart rate was doing. And the idea was they were measuring um, cortisol levels or cortisol and like spiked heart rates. Mm -hmm. um, and then they would measure how connected they feel, felt to other people. The second day they had a tube. So you get cortisol, you can do cortisol testing just by swabbing your mouth. Um, and the second day, they had them swab their mouth and put it in a tube. So same thing. So time of day, how connected they felt during that time of day, their heart rate, and then the swab of the saliva in order to measure cortisol. And what they found was people that felt lonely had a skyrocketed level of cortisol. So when put in isolation or when feeling in this sense of isolation, your cortisol levels, which is your stress hormone, was skyrocketed. Um, another one in the book by a professor by the name of Sheldon Cohen carried out a study with a bunch of people where she recorded um, how many friends they had, how many healthy relationships they had, how many social connections they had, um, took them to a lab and deliberately gave them a cold virus and tried to figure out would the people that felt disconnected and isolated contract the cold any more aggressively or any different than people that actually felt connected to other people. Isolated people, lonely people were three times more likely to catch that cold hmm. and get that and get sick. Another lady. So Lisa Bergman followed isolated people and highly connected people for nine years to see um, who would more likely die and of what for nine years. She discovered that isolated people were two to three times more likely to die in that period of cancer, heart disease, respiratory problems, um, and all these things became more fatal from being isolated. Those are 
just some of several studies that Johan had like pointed out as far as like human connection and how important it is to our health and like our mental well-being and our performance. So, um, and I add in the performance one there, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing that I took away from that part of it, the human connection part, and the reason why I'm diving so deep into this, because right now, like it's huge, right? It's a big topic. Like we are all isolated. When you put lonely people in a brain scan machine, they identify, they notice that the parts of the brain that identifies threats was twice as active okay. as a normal person. Meaning like, so a hundred thousand years ago, hunter-gatherer in the grassland, person found themselves alone from a hunting tribe. They immediately were spiked with cortisol. Fight or flight ref- like reflex goes on, right? Because like you're, you're not protected. Mm-hmm. You don't have anyone watching out for your back. That feeling and that sense of being alone perpetuated causes you to die, basically, is what they were saying. And it, well, first, the first thing it does is cause you to try and look out for your tribe. So anyone that has some sort of connection. So if you feel like this group of people is acting in a way that you think you should be acting in order for you to feel connected and like that you have someone to have your back, you're going to connect that group of people, right? Go back to meaningful values where people are drifting and just the exact terms that you use were pretty good, but people are um, trapped in dogma, I guess you can call it, living someone else's life. It's because it's a survival instinct. Lots to unpack there. So... The the initial exercise here was like, what is the solution to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we how do we rebuild that? Right. So, I think one thing for me that I've noticed about myself during COVID, and we I don't know how much we've dove into on the podcast necessarily, but like me going through this big period of self reflection and change, right? Like leaving the company. Um, ending a long relationship, uh, thinking about moving from Wilmington at some point in the near future, like all of these really big picture changes that I'm reflecting on who I'm spending time with, why I'm spending time with people, having more separation between me and my family than I've ever had in my life before. And so all of this puts a lot of pressure on all of these, all of these things. But in the context of meaningful people, I have found myself becoming more introverted like one because we are in a quarantine but like I have less of an inclination to want to reach out to people you know outside of like a very small subset that I do want to keep spending time with and it's really interesting because I know that one of the best things you can do for yourself is manage authentic meaningful relationships and keep those up but Right now, it like I don't have a, a keen interest on all of the relationships that I've been managing for the last five years. Like I'm letting some of them dissolve intentionally, and it just is what it is. So mm. that's a little bit of an aside, but like I feel that happening in real time. So I thought it was relevant to talk about. That's interesting. I, want, I imagine that's a common. I think so. Right? Because you're not seeing the same people you saw every day when you go to work. That's true. And a lot and of those were superficial, probably, relationships. It, it, it goes back to the values. Like, hey, all right, if, if these are the things that I say I believe in, if these are the things I say I want to do, do these people fit within that schema? If the answer is yes, then cool, let's, like, let's double down. If the answer is no, no ill will, no hard feelings, it's just it's not worth the time or the energy expenditure at that point because it's like either inauthentic or... Just not adding value. 
But that was just a little aside. Mm-hmm. The the solution, in in my opinion, on reconfiguring relationships, meaningful relationships with people, is a matter of. Uh, it, it goes back to what I said about meaningful work. Like, if you if you tell yourself a story or you create a situation where, well. I'm going to wait till they text me or they haven't reached out to me in 30 days or, you know, oh, they, they probably don't even notice if I don't reach out. If you tell yourself that narrative, then it's really easy to like not bridge the gap and draw the relationship back into fruition. And so I think that the underlying theme here for how to recover from a, again, a minor depressive state or a mild depressive state, if you're, if it's chemical, if it's genetic, this stuff doesn't necessarily blanket apply, right? But the the underlying theme here is action needs to be taken. Like a change needs to be made. The 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 same behaviors, the same thoughts, if you continue to have them, you're gonna still feel the same way. Your physiology is gonna be the same, your psychology is gonna be the same. So it's being thoughtful about who the people are in your orbit as far as relationships go, and then being the genesis or the catalyst for those relationships to turn back on. Yeah. And I'd like to, uh, I mean, if it makes sense to you call that state instead of a mild depressive state or anything like that, like it's potentially a stuck state. Sure. Yeah. Just for the sake of like staying congruent across like zero to one versus like negative one to zero. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the, the snowball effect of, um, shutting down socially was the thing that stood out for me to be like so incredibly important to point out. So what happens is, is when you shut down socially, you become more suspicious of social contact. And it's like, if you were, if you were out for a long period of time on the grasslands as a hunter gatherer lost from your tribe and you see people you didn't know, you, you still had that threat, the amygdala acting up and you're seeing these people as potential threats instead of exactly the thing that you needed, which was human connection. Interesting. Someone to have your back. That's a good perspective. So we have, all right. So we have four more to hit really quickly, and we've already touched on most of them. So I think we could. It was number four was disconnection from childhood trauma, mm-hmm. and I think we, I think we nailed that one. It's not just you know from a standpoint of performance. It's not exactly trauma. It's micro traumas. It's small things that have made you develop habits that are fighting against you. Right. It's, yeah, it's the the response to said traumas, mm-hmm. which became your thought patterns and behaviors. Right. So, I mean, we talk about this all the time on the podcast from a performance standpoint, meditation. I think the thing that stands out the most for me. Self-awareness one, development. Self, yeah. Like through mm-hmm. meditation. Sure, right. Yeah. Um, I think, again, I, I know I sound like a, a broken record here, but like starting off with the values, because one of the ones we're about to get to is the thought of having a secure disconnection of having a secure future. So having a state of ambiguity, i.e. COVID, like what is around the corner? Is the economy going to die? What's going to happen politically? What's going to happen health wise to the world? What's going to happen to travel and my ability to go see people like so many ambiguous ramifications of the pandemic that we're currently under. Right. And so when you couple looking backwards trauma that you've experienced looking forwards ambiguity of where I'm going. The only thing that you can do is develop a sense of self-awareness as to, okay, 
what, how do I respond to these traumas that I experienced in the past? Like, like how do I behave differently? So you can ask friends like, Hey, what are my strengths and weaknesses? What are some areas that you see that are triggers for me that I might have a blind spot to like draw your tribe in to help you identify those places, right? Build that level of self-awareness, take ownership of what you can control, which is I want to fix some of these things and get myself to a state of like optimal mindset and headspace to take on the ambiguity in front of me. But it's all derivative of, okay, now what are my, what do I want the future to look like? What is the best that I can do to control going forward? It's cleaning up my headspace, like cleaning up the clutter up there and then starting to put actions into play that allow me to manifest some level of control over the ambiguous environment. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a good, so the next one was disconnection from status and respect. I, the only way I can think about that one is back to the meaningful work and the people you surround yourself with and um, choose people in your life wisely and leaders in your life wisely. Um, so there's, and it, the reason why I say that is because the big, the big thing about that in, in the book was that he said that humans are wired to think hierarchically, high, high, hierarchically, <laughs> hierarchically. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we literally, if we feel feeble, if we feel weak, then we will automatically in that moment, it might be a trigger or something that triggered some sort of lower state of mind. If we feel weak, we feel feeble. We're going to look to power. Mm -hmm. We're going to look to whoever's powerful. And our culture has created, our media has created like, what is power? What's money and maybe government, right? So we look to these places in order for our leadership, but these, a lot of these, a lot of times they don't have your best interest, right? So, um, I think that's where he was. That's where he was going in the book about it. Now, from a high performance standpoint, um, I don't know. I, I that one was a little bit lost on me. The only thing I can think of is really choose wisely, choose your leaders, um, and act in the spirit of kind of like leadership. So this is disconnect from status and respect that you're speaking on right now. Yeah, isn't that like my own status and respect, like self respect? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. Like the the way my head goes for that is it's it's insecurity. Like what what type of self respect do you have? For high performers, it's I'm not good enough. It's like your friend who's a franchisee who's built this amazing business who continues to say more and more and more and more and more, like discontent with what has already been built, and you start to like value your self-worth by some sort of milestones or quantitative like uh, accumulation of something, wealth or number of employees or um, from an artist or a musician standpoint, number of number one hits or number of streams on Spotify or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're starting to like place your value in something that's outside of yourself. You're creating an external locus of control. And so I think the solution to reconnecting with self, with status and self-respect is juxtaposing your, your actions and, and the, the things that you tell yourself, make yourself whole. Like it's in part stopping and smelling the roses and acknowledging the journey that you've been on, embracing the process and continuing to remind yourself that your accomplishments aren't a reflection of your value as a person. That's a really good way to put all that. In fact, 
I'm confident now, like remembering the book, I think he touched on a lot of that in that section. Cool. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, yeah, and, it, and I, I do remember him talking a lot about the media and kind of where where we put our respect, where we put our external respect and our attention and the people that we perceive as like who we want to be or emulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I, I actually, in the, the Beanie and Blazer newsletter in the Hive on Sunday, I shared a uh, an article that was published about why people who are dicks like become leaders in times of crisis. Like why do we naturally gravitate to people who are um, maybe not great people, but it's all about the perception of power and the ability to like cut through the noise and we're willing to you know, sacrifice some morality or sacrifice some integrity for the sake of having strong leadership in a time of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really interesting exploration of like where psychology, like, like our needs for, guidance and leadership has a conflict with our needs for, um, r respect, like, and, um, and so not to make this political, but I was having a conversation with a mentor yesterday, just shooting the shit, talking about the election that's coming up. And it's like, you have two ways to look at it. It's like, you have a lot of economic risk potentially by Biden winning, you know, with taxes, like if they're going to jump long-term tax games to 40%, people that are in the stock market are going to pull out of the stock market because there's no incentive to be there. So the supply of stock is going to go up and that could damage the economy. But then people just pulled all their cash out. So folks are theoretically sitting on money. What, what does that mean? So you, if you have Trump, at least it's like a, a known enemy or a known, that, I mean, that's not fair, a known uh, risk mm -hmm. as far as the economy the devil is, you is know concerned. Is, Perfect. Right? Devil you know. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, it's like, are you willing to have somebody in the driver's seat who is so pompous and like makes us look so bad. And so we were talking about what comes first. Like, do I value the economy and my financial position first, or do I value the rep, my representation of leadership? And so it created a really cool debate of us going back and forth on that's cool. You know, it's all theory with mm -hmm. the economy and stuff, but it, it, it was a relatable conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's huge for the, I would love to get into that even more, but for the sake of time, we'll do that over dinner. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, for the sake of time. Yeah. So, um, next is disconnection from natural world. Um, we, we, we talk about that often in performance, how important it is to get out and expand your sense of your position in the universe, mm -hmm. right? Like to, to scope out a little bit and to see that like, you're just this tiny little speck in the universe, or you can look over like one of the practices that you do is look over a giant, like a really cool um, landscape in person, really in like nature. And they say it literally has brain activity going on that you start diminishing your ego a little bit and start realizing that like you're small. None of this fucking matters. Yeah. You're <laughs> just small. Right. So, um, so from a performance standpoint, the natural world, um, from what you've researched, what else is there around a natural world that we can mention? Yeah, go get, go get a Nate. I mean, this, I feel so profoundly connected to this right now. I'm leaving next Wednesday to go out to the mountains in North Carolina just to have some breathing room and to like, just go spend time in nature, turn oh, off yeah. for a minute. Like I need that so bad. Mm -hmm. But then on a more macro scale, I think I'm going to move to Colorado next year 
to, to be in the mountains and to have more space and openness and, um, a change of scenery because I feel do we, I've talked about that with my wife so many times going to Colorado, moving to Colorado. Yeah. 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 There's just I, so much nature out there. It's I'm yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole, but my point is that's a, that is an intuitive natural response for me mm-hmm. when I'm feeling these things of whether it's anxiety or stuck state, um, which I'm not like we're building the business, we're doing cool stuff, but I do feel all this pressure from COVID that everybody else is feeling. And my natural instinct is I just, I need to go, like I need to go get mm-hmm. out and um, remember that none, yeah. none of this, none of this matters. Yeah. There's some, I mean, there's a lot of neurochemical um, reactions that happen when you can like widen your scope like that. There's this dude, uh, he's a neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman. Mm-hmm that talks about this. He studies the way the eyes and the brain are connected. So he basically says that the eyes are a part of the brain, directly a part of the brain. They're just the only external part of like the tissue of the brain. And interesting. He does this practice where, and I'm, I think I'll get this right. So he does this practice where he says to stare out into onto a landscape. It could be anywhere outside where you can open your field of vision. And so start with, so, in a high cortisol state, when you're stressed out, you're very focused. It's just you have your pupils dilate and you dial in on whatever it mm-hmm. is that you're doing because that's just what cortisol does. So to expand that um, perception and to like look at the entire outer rim of your visual field, it activates a part of the brain that will decrease cortisol. So something you can do is stand outside, put your hand right in front of your face and focus on your hand for I don't know, a few seconds or whatever or maybe a minute. And then remove your hand and scope out your vision to um, to as far as you can, high, low, left, right, and just do that without look like you have to stay steady, keep oh, your eyes oh. straight, and just widen your perspective. Okay. And he says that that'll decrease stress and cortisol. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's a cool thing. Andrew Huberman. Huberman. Huber- okay. Yeah, cool. he's uh, he's a cool dude. I got his name. So, last one: disconnect from hopeful and secure future we did that one we did jump to that one yeah but to go in order what did we talk about we talked about how you have to control what you can control to reduce ambiguity from the future so like the only thing that you can do none of us can predict the future yeah right like it's just divorce happens businesses break up careers don't go the way that people expect it happens all the time that you go on a fishing trip you may not ever catch any fish but uh, the only thing that you can do is maximize your potential for having the outcome that you want. So if you're going on a fishing trip, you never fished before, learn how to fish. Like look up the best spots in the area to go fishing, to have a higher potential of fishing, right? Get the right gear. Um, to not get divorced, go through, get, get experience, make sure it's what you want and don't mm-hmm. do, don't be stupid about it. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. It comes back to developing clarity, it, right? Like it, you and I talk about all the time. It's values. Yeah. Values. <laughs> it, you're right. It, like everything goes back to it. That's insane. I haven't thought about that until doing this. I know that that's something that you're super focused on with Beanie and Blazer, but I'm now just on this podcast right now realizing how important it actually it's is. The way I think about it and the way that we're training it in the mindset accelerator, and we'll close up after this, but. Think of like a hub and spoke model, right? So instead of like 
zero to dangerous in a lot of these programs it's module one module two module three and it's this like it's a ladder format mine is hub is values and it plugs into everything else that we do as part of the program like everything anchors back to your personal compass and your purpose statement because as soon as you get dissociated from those values from like those core tenets of who you are as soon as that breaks you're fucked up something like you have to go back and make sure that's optimized and in line Mm. and and you can go back and readdress it and think through your values and they can they can evolve over time but they should be pretty steadfast but making sure they're right takes a lot of deep thought and energy and so that's something we keep revisiting throughout the program to make sure that by the time you leave you know like if i am living in accordance with my values this is what that means and then everything else is a byproduct of that that's fascinating yeah that's cool well i'm glad i hope that I mean, this sounds like it might have validated that a little bit. I, I think so. That's awesome. So instead of like saying, here's a bunch of takeaways, here's nine things or seven things you can do to blah, blah, blah. I think the answer to what are the takeaways is um, get clarity on who, your values, your self-awareness. I think right? that's, that's step one. Absolutely. If you feel stuck and you're trying to get from zero to one, that's got to be the place to start, right? Outline five things. The way I always say it is pretend that you die. And somebody is writing a biography about your entire life. The biography can only be five chapters. And each chapter of the book is a way that you lived your life, a characteristic that you upheld, a value that you represented throughout your life. How would you want them to write that book? Like, who who were you? How did you behave? What type of people did you interact with? So you outline those five values, and that becomes the genesis of all this other stuff. But... We got to wrap this. Yeah, we're running out of time. Yep. That sucks, but that's awesome. I'm excited to read this book. All right, let's jump into the weekly challenge since we're running out of time here. All right. Uh, The weekly challenge, our favorite part of the show, because we get to torture each other over a long period of time for the sake of learning, of course. Of course. Um, We have this chalkboard behind us, keeping score of how many challenges each one of us successfully completes. And after 10 episodes, the person with the fewest points has to do a user-submitted challenge. Done. Done. And the winner actually Done. gets rewarded something, too. Somehow. We're just, we're just going to figure that out. We'll figure so, it out. So, last week, last podcast, you challenged me to go on a three-day hiatus from caffeine. So, I've done this before, and it's something I do almost yearly, kind of. And not for anything, just because like I just like feel like I don't like being addicted to things. Yet I really love caffeine. Caffeine's good. Caffeine's good. So when I did it, I knew I was gonna feel like sad and lonely, and like I need a hug. <laughs> the old coffee hug. <laughs> the old coffee hug. Because I mean, you really do go through withdrawals, dude. Right? You yes. really do, and it sucks. So you, I had to do three days, and I knew it was gonna suck. So I, I committed to, I always have a notebook on me anyway, but I grabbed one of my, my bigger notebooks. I committed to journaling like throughout it, just like my thoughts. Cause I know that like when you're in that state, it's almost like a mini depressed state, right? Your, your thought loops are just wild, right? You're constantly thinking negative shit, right? That's caffeine withdrawal. So I was journaling about it and I didn't know what was going to come out of it. And what I came up with was it seemed like 
when you're going through that caffeine withdrawal, it's almost like it magnifies certain things. It brings stuff up to the surface and like all these thought loops start going on. Like, like just Stephen Kotler says in, uh, um, with when it comes to flow on the back end of flow, don't listen to yourself, mm-hmm. ignore yourself. Right. Like when you're hung over, like when you're hung over. Right. So instead I was like, all right, how can I turn this into like a productive three days rather than me just quitting, quitting caffeine. So in my journaling, I identified, like going back and reading my journals, I identified a few patterns. I identified a few things like ruminations or just like whatever. It might be a conversation I wasn't having or something I was avoiding. And on the fourth day, when I was allowed to have caffeine again, I had this list, a couple of things that I wanted to do that came up in the depressive state. Mm -hmm. And I got the idea from you. You told me about a friend of yours who is bipolar and has these crazy swings, but he found a way to benefit from the low ones, like journaling and identifying like parts about his life he didn't want, and then whiteboards everywhere. Whiteboards, yeah, and then and then executing when he's on his high, right? So I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to put myself through this stupid caffeine withdrawal because your stupid challenge, then I'm going to make it. <laughs> then I'm going to make it beneficial. Okay. And so I did that. I made a list. It was just a few things that I went and did the next day. Two things happened. One, the week before, my golf game was shit. I shot in like the 90s. And it was, I had like sleep, blah, 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 blah. After the caffeine withdrawal, after doing the journaling and then executing on the stuff that I was journaling about, I shot an 80. Crushed it. That's real good. Yeah. And I, I haven't shot like in the low 80s. Now I'm shooting the low 80s on the regs. And I, I tackled things I was avoiding that were coming up that like, I didn't even know I was avoiding. I tackled conversations that I didn't like know I was avoiding, just stupid ones that I would like ruminate about, some of them bigger. And um, without the caffeine withdrawal, none of that, it would have probably stayed on the subconscious level, would have stayed underneath a little bit. So it's almost like it opened that up. So it actually was super beneficial. And I might have like accidentally, I think you made a stumble on like a little hack. I don't know if it would work across the board because I'm just one subject. I'm glad you had that experience because <laughs> I, the week prior to challenging you, I did a three-day fast of caffeine and I hated mm. it. Like I, I was not, maybe I didn't journal like you did. I didn't have the sort of self-reflection to, or the, the thoughtfulness or proactivity to do like, that. Yeah, go I into just, it with purpose. I was just pissed. And I was sitting there in, in meetings and like my partner, Jake, was talking to me. And I couldn't like I couldn't even process what he was saying. I was like, dude, fuck this. Like, I'm trying to launch a company right now. I need to I need to be on point. And so I didn't give myself any of the space to make it worthwhile. I just kept seeing like you're fucking worthless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't. And I, I literally couldn't. I couldn't function the same way. That's interesting. So uh, but. If I went back, like after, I mean, there there was literally like we just did so much work in the last month, right? So like that was a really bad time for me to try doing that. I wonder if I went back, like while I'm on vacation next week or something like that, if it's a little bit more um, thought provoking and engaging, purposeful. Per- if you did good. it with intention prior to, yeah, I think that's probably was the key to me being able to unlock some shit. So for the sake of I, we we kind of moved our schedules around so we don't have much time between podcasts this time. Yeah. I wanted to flip the script and put that one back on you. The caffeine but, one again? But do it purposefully. Oh, you bet. See if you have the what? same <laughs> response <laughs> that I did. 
But do like the journaling, do ah. have an intention. <laughs> so that means today's Friday. I like I don't even have time. We don't have three days. Yeah. You have two days. You think it's you think it's the same? I mean, yeah, my first and second day were the worst. We're, my my first day was fine. It was day two and three. That day really two sucked. and yeah, my first day was headaches. Day two and three was when I really. Day two was when I really got like the good, like stuff. Day by day three, it was like, all right, I'm over this. And we're going to a weekend. Yeah. What do you think? I I want to do three days. Like, what do you think about holding that one for the next? For like, when you go do on you your have vacation? Another challenge. Yeah. Queued up by chance. I told you one earlier today. Yeah, but you won't do it with me. You have to find somebody else. Okay, so Eric wants me to have an argument with somebody where I'm bare-ass naked in the argument, which it, it sounds like fun, but I want Eric to be the person that I'm arguing with while I'm naked, and he won't do it. I don't, like, my brother's not going to do it. I don't, I don't know what to do. Can I? It's not my problem. I'll call my mom. Are we going to argue with your mom naked? <laughs> <laughs> Can I have... I think picking me is too easy. Dude, who... Who's going to say I would, yes look, to that? I would be happy to argue with you naked. I don't want to be naked. That no, would just make it weird. No, you don't... And that's that would the be point. really like, emasculating. Only, yeah. <laughs> No, I need. All right, all right. Yeah, let's let's save the caffeine one. Okay, I'll do the fucking naked thing. I just need like, I honestly don't know. I'm I'm honestly pretty comfortable with this, but I'm. I figured it'd be an easy one for you. And but the thing that makes me really uncomfortable is, do I have to pick the fight? Like, do they know that we're supposed to be arguing, or am I just like strip bare ass naked, knock on their door, and I'm like, fuck you? You pick the fight. You got to know someone well enough to know the buttons to press. While I'm naked. While you're naked. What if they tell me to put pants on? <laughs> There's um. I just I need to figure out somebody to argue. You have with time by. to think. You got three days. I have two days. Two days. Like I just don't understand how this scenario. You plays have to out. have the dialogue already built in. You got to know what the topic but is. But why that you're am arguing I naked? About. Do you have a different, like, a opposing political view from somebody that you know that you can argue naked with? Yes. Boom. There you go. But how do I end up naked without them being like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And then telling me to put my clothes back on? You don't have like a special somebody that you can just like Chandler, argue. Chandler, I could go over to Chandler, Boom. but he would be like, "Dude, what is happening?" Doesn't matter. He has to. He has to argue with you. All right, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> All right, fucking. What else is there? We have two right. days. No, that that works. That's you want fine. me to change it again? No. You, you want to clap? Last year. <laughs> Entrepreneurs on the fly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's get this over with. <laughs> So uh, moving on to entrepreneurs on the fly, where we talk about our businesses, what problems we've experienced, some lessons learned, and then hopefully some 
guided recommendations from each other and from listeners. Uh, do you have it? What do you got for entrepreneurs on the fly? I'm still fucked up over this challenge. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. My entrepreneurs on the fly Facebook ads. Hmm. Uh, it's a lot. It goes deep. So we launched our first ad sets for the Mindset Accelerator on Monday. Uh, we launched with six different types of copy. So short form and long form for three different ad groups. We had driving that traffic to three different landing pages. Um, and from there, there was an application process. Our ads seem to be performing really well to get people to the landing page. Like the creative is seems to be working. Our cost per click is really low comparatively. Um, we're getting a lot of impressions. People are getting to the landing page. People are not converting through to the application. So then that begs a series of questions, right? And what I do like about it is it's all very split testable. Like there's only so many reasons why thing A, B, or it's like why people are doing or not doing what you want them to. That's really interesting, but it's meticulous. Like you have to, it's an experiment and it takes time to continue cultivating. So for example, people are clicking through to our website, but they're not taking action. So that means that either A, the copy in the ad is somehow misleading for them, right? So that it's like a bait and switch almost. They're clicking through the landing page. They're like, this is not what I expected here. And then they bounce off the page. That's one thing. The creative on the landing page itself could be bad. The copy could be bad. The video could be bad. The button for the land for the application could be wrong. There could be too many questions that we're asking. So it could, it's something on the landing page. So then how do you test that? you test different copy, you test a different video, you test different elements of the landing page. And so you have to keep like building all of this out until you narrow, 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 narrow down and have these high conversion rates. And so we ran the ads for three days, spent like a hundred bucks, learned a bunch of stuff. And now we're going and testing some of these things. Um, but going through the process for the first time, I've, I've written a ton of sales copy right? Like emails in a sales funnel or scripts to do demos or cold calls. Um, I have never written like creative scripts uh, or copy for pure advertisements, pure marketing. That was a new experience. Writing our sales video and the copy for the landing page, all new experience. And collaborating with a team to get all that out of the door was first time I have ever managed or led that before. So, um, a lot of fun, good experience, and we are learning a shit ton really quickly. So yeah. that is my update. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff's tough. It is. But it's 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 perpetual, right? It's never ending. You're constantly always iterating your message. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um so. but what and another thing that I underestimated was how laborious actually managing the campaign is. Like you know, you hear all the time, Facebook's analytics are amazing. Their targeting is amazing. That is all super true and granular, but it's so granular and you could test so many things that if you don't have somebody supervising the adjustments of the campaign, it's not worth the money that you're spending. So like between Jake and myself, we're able to put it together, but we need to find somebody that we can hand it off to, to dial it in. Cause he and I are so busy with the other aspects of the business that need to be grown. Mm -hmm. How are you dialing in on exactly the messaging itself? Like, have you guys built out, do you have like a direct, um, are you just focused on 
one customer persona, like one super focused customer persona? Do you have several or? We have three. So okay. and you're tailoring the messages to each one. Yep. Yep. Do you know, did you test all three yes. at the same time? So yeah. okay. for entrepreneurs, for example, for uh, targeting first time entrepreneurs, the message is something along this is uh, a synopsis, obviously, but as a, as a first time entrepreneur, you have to learn a ton about marketing, finance, product development, uh, uh, team building, right? You have all these like t- tactical skills to learn that you're not focusing on yourself and your own development. And you might accidentally build a business that outgrows you. And then you're no longer the right person for the business. So the idea is you need to grow in tandem with your company. So you're always the right leader for the business as it grows and scales. Like I've witnessed firsthand CEOs sort of get outpaced. Mm-hmm. So it's not, that is by far our worst ad set. They're a, worst based performing. on a tiny bit of data that we have right now. Right, right, right. The grad student one is, you spent six years, you got two pieces of paper and you have a mountain of student debt. And all of that was to learn these tactical skills that got your foot in the door for the career that you've wanted. But there's a difference between just getting your foot in the door and accelerating your career and earning promotions and having the upside mobility or upward mobility that you want. Learning these things is going to help get you promoted over X, Y, and Z people and dust your competition who also got their graduate degrees. It's like that next right. step. It's like stagnation avoidance. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> fear of fear of complacency mm-hmm. is sort of the, the underlying thing there. So that one is performing well. And then we had a more generalized ad that is, you know, we all thought we knew what we wanted. We had the lifestyles, we had the friends, we had the financial means, then COVID hit and blew our lives up. And so now you need to take control of what you can control and we can teach you how to remove the ambiguity ambiguity from your life and set you and your family up for long-term success. And that one's performing pretty well too. Yeah, I can imagine. Targeting needs and then immediate needs is always going to probably perform better, yeah. Um, but again, it's performing better to get them to the website, not to click all the way through So mm-hmm. or right. to, to apply. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not like I expected to flip on ads having never written them before and it's just magically pouring money and applicants into our coffers. I knew it doesn't go like that. Mm. So, uh, what I do where I was misaligned is I have a goal to have 20 interviews by the end of August. And right now we have zero done and we have 17 days left in the month. I don't Mm. think I'm going to hit that. Um, unless I start using my personal social media and asking people to apply, but I wanted it from cold traffic to test the marketing. That's interesting. Have you considered just like focusing on one of those, pers- the one persona that performed the best and then just iterating that message as the best you can get it? The problem is for us to know which one's performing best, we need more data. So you we want to split enough. test some of those other things across all segments. Right. And then yes, we'll definitely narrow. Like it's like, it's like the, our thesis at least is you get bigger, 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 create more avenues but every avenue that you have is more segmented and then you'll start to pick from those strip out the other stuff. But like if you immediately start small, you may miss out on things that could outperform and we only have three days of traffic. Yeah, that's rough. Actually, it's funny. I saw on Instagram, there's an ad I saw today called traffic funnels. Um, basically like part of it, I skimmed through it. They said, fuck funnels. They don't work and blah, 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 blah. And this is how you do it just off of Facebook. Hmm. Interesting. I want to check it out. Yeah. I don't want to give them a plug, but I uh, looked 
Interesting. <laughs> All right, traffic, know, <laughs> traffic funnels. Uh, cool. Beep. Put like a curse word beep in there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're good enough to like. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, you ready to wrap up? Yeah. Cool. Good That's shit, it. dude. Nice. All right, time to get naked. Thank you so much for listening to Beanie and Blazer Radio. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. It makes a huge difference and we really appreciate it. For more resources, visit our website, beanieandblazer.com. We have tons of other great content available for you to check out. Stay tuned for new episodes of the podcast every Thursday. Thanks for listening.